So the word manger comes from a Latin word that means to chew or to eat, which is, uh, makes a lot of sense since a manger was literally a place, uh, just a trough where horses and donkeys and, and various animals would eat. The word manger is found three times in Luke chapter two, which is my favorite version of the Christmas story. Uh, This is what we read every Christmas morning is the version found in Luke chapter two. And it says this, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Interestingly, we don't know that they even went to the inn to check if there was room, just to let you know, because we always blame the innkeeper and give him a hard time. But there's no evidence that they actually went and checked. It just says there was no room for them. So stop judging people when you don't know everything, all right? And then in verse 12, you have the angels coming to the shepherds, and it says this, that this will be a sign that you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That's because it was so unusual. Like, this is how you're going to be able to identify this new child, this king, the sign, this is how you're going to be able to identify Jesus is he's going to be lying in a manger. And then verse 16, you have the shepherds coming and seeing it. It says, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So those are the instances that we see where Jesus was placed. I mean, you, so just imagine this, you new parents, you know what your hospital room looked like when you had that baby, right? Everything is sterile. Daddy has to have a gown on. We make sure everything is perfectly clean. <clears throat> Goodness, we boil their pacifiers if it falls on the ground before we put it back in their mouth, right? Like we just make sure we sanitize everything. Third or fourth child, it's like, ah, it's all right. But we are so careful. We don't want our kids getting sick and we keep them away from people. We don't let anybody hold them. And and I'm not making judgment on any. I'm just saying, look at the difference between that and Mary has this brand new baby and puts it in a manger. That's pretty remarkable. But here's what's incredible to me. So we learned last week that this birth was foretold by the prophet Isaiah 740 years prior to. That means that God had at least 740 years to work this out. And Jesus was still put in a manger. It wasn't an uh-oh. It was intentional. So then you got to ask yourself, well, then why? If you have all of this time to plan everything about the coming of your son, the birth of your son into this world, why would you have him born in a stable and lay him in a manger? I mean, to a Jew, there is nothing honorable about this entrance into this world. Literally a feeding trough surrounded by livestock. There's fewer things that that would have been humiliatingly more common. And then the fact that shepherds were the ones who got to be told about the birth. Shepherds were no counts. Shepherds were, okay, shepherds' testimonies were, were not even allowed in a courtroom. Like they had such 
bad reputations that they would not even allow their testimonies to be used in a case, and yet they are the ones that God told to go tell everybody about the newborn baby. Everything about this seems so counterintuitive. Everything about this birth seems so humiliating. But there's a difference between humility and humiliating, isn't there? There's intentionality behind this. But it's one thing to live humbly when you ain't all that. It's one thing when you know who you are and you choose to live humbly because you know your faults and failures and your sins and your problems. When you don't have anything to be proud about. But when you're God and you control the weather and you know the hearts of men and you can heal the sick and you can raise the dead, it, ha- it adds a whole new dimension to the humility expressed by Jesus. He could have been born as king and how different would that have been viewed by your average individual? So the question is, and why did he come poorly and humbly? Why was he born in a manger? I, I want to consider that kind of humility. And I want to put this forth. I believe that the humility of Christ is both our example and our calling. So as we sit here today, and it's this beautiful time of year, and I, and I love so much about Christmas. And as we sing a beautiful carol, a beautiful hymn that's been around for so long, and the truth of that carol showing the humility of our Christ, I'd like to consider that there is something in there that we are to learn from, that we are to model that type of behavior is what we're saying. Paul gives us some insight. He wrote this book called Philippians to a church in Philippi, and it was one of the happiest churches. So the the church at Philippi, um, there's a lot of joy in this book. It's a book of joy, if you will. And uh, he spent a long time with the Philippians, and he's writing back to them. And he's talking about community, and he's talking about humility and how integral that is in their relationships with each other. And he's showing us, through the example of Christ, how we are to live in community with each other. And he says this as the example in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He's telling the church at Philippi, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus who was God, but made himself of no reputation and became a servant and became obedient unto death. To death. Paul is saying, church, this is our example. Paul is saying there's a lesson to be learned here about intentional humility. This is the life that we are called to live. We are imitators of Jesus. The word Christian is not just a box you check as your religious preference. The word Christian means Christ-like, right? 
Christians didn't don that name on themselves. They were given that name because of their behavior. They were called Christians because they were little Christ. They behaved like the Jesus they followed. So as we, as we see this Jesus behaving this way, exhibiting these characteristics, this one specific characteristic of humility, that becomes the calling in our life. And that's what God blesses. God doesn't bless great talent as much as he blesses great likeness to Jesus. And I'm all about your talents and I'm all about you giving all that you have to God. But I think that there needs to be this reminder that it's not about how great you appear or how much you can do. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus. Somebody asked Michelangelo one time, how in the world do you carve such incredible figures out of a block of stone? He goes, it's really much easier than you might think. I just take away everything that doesn't look like what I want it to look like. (laughs) Makes sense, right? It doesn't look, so I take away everything that doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. That's what Jesus is trying to do with us, is we are to imitate him. And so the, uh, the process of life is to, is to remove things out of our lives that don't look like Jesus. You ever watch the show Undercover Boss? The premise of the show is that some famous person in the company puts on a disguise and just becomes an employee. Maybe he pretends he's shooting a documentary And so he interacts with some of his employees in different aspects of the company. And by the end of the show, he has a good idea of where the weaknesses are in his company and where the strengths are. And then at the end of the show, he meets with each one of the people that he worked with. And he's either going to fire them or bless them. And like you're watching the show, you know which is going to happen. Like, oh, I can't wait to see what he says to that person or, or he does something beautiful and just blesses. And, and what, so, so this, this glimpse into the church of Philippi is kind of like Paul saying, this is what Jesus is looking for from his church. This is the example we're supposed to follow. If Jesus were an undercover Christian, and came to Virginia Hills Church, what is he finding? What's important to him in a church like this? What example has he given us to follow? So you're like, well, that's the church thing. That's not my responsibility because I'm not really in charge of anything around here. All right, so how about your family? If Jesus were an undercover member of your family, What kind of conversations are happening? How are we interacting with each other? Are we blessing? Are we breathing life into those people? And Jesus was a servant. He was the example that we are to follow. And he wanted us to know. He takes on the form of man. And he wants us to know that it's possible that you can live Godly, You can live a surrendered life in this world, in this flesh, that pleases the Father and blesses other people 
It is possible. He is our example. And not only that, he knew that humility is foundational to Christian community. So, so you think about in a church setting like this or in your family, genuine humility as expressed by Jesus Christ is an integral part of living in relationship with other people. It is critical, it is crucial to community to choose to live humbly. So Jesus, as we saw in our text, he evidenced this community in three ways. He evidenced this kind of humility in three ways. And the first thing was through his selflessness. It says in the first part of verse seven in chapter two, it had said that, that he made himself of no reputation. This was the creator of the universe. His focus was on his father's will. John MacArthur said this, he said, as God, Christ owns everything, but when he came to this world, he borrowed everything. So think about this, right? He borrowed a place to be born. He had no home of his own as an adult. He had to borrow a boat to cross the, Gal the Sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow a donkey to ride in to Jerusalem as the what we call his triumphal entry. He had to borrow a room to celebrate Passover with his friends, and he had to be buried in a borrowed tomb. He was the target of much disrespect and false accusations. They, they called him a blasphemer. They said that he was a sinner, a friend of publicans and sinners. They said that he was in league with the devil. He's doing all this good stuff, right? But he's falsely accused. He was rejected. He was despised. He endured an incredible lack of appreciation for all that he did do. Think about the thousands of people he fed and the hundreds of people that he healed and all that he did with no great appreciation. He helped people every day but was physically and verbally attacked to the point that they arrested him and they killed him. There was no sense of entitlement because I'm the son of God. He knew why he was here. That selflessness, like he goes through his life not making it about him. That's so hard for us though, isn't it? Like if we don't consider that everything we do is about us, then who's going to? Like if we don't make sure that we are taking care of, who else is gonna do it? We feel like we have to go through life defending ourselves and doing good for ourselves because nobody else is gonna do it for us. Just the opposite of what Jesus was doing. Jesus lived his life for his father. Jesus lived unselfishly. That's how he evidenced his humility. And that's who we are supposed to model our lives after. Peter, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, says this, For, here, for even here in two you're called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. This is the life that we are called to live, this humility, this, this sense of selflessness. But not only selflessness, we found in Philippians that he also served. So through service, the end of that same verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, and took upon him the form of a servant. 
Listen, this was, just, this was not just positional servanthood. It was practical servanthood. What I mean is like he didn't just go through life claiming to be a servant. He literally served. Like he did service for other people. He was given little, but he served everyone. Sometimes we think, well, if we had a little bit more time or if we had a little bit more finances, I'd be able to do more for everybody else. Let me tell you, whatever you have been given, whatever time you have, whatever life you are living, we are called to a place of service. That's how humility is evidenced. It's who Jesus is. It's who he was. and It's who we are called to be. Even there's this great story. So like the disciples, they're all arguing about who's going to be greatest whenever the God's kingdom comes down, right? Who's going to be the greatest? Can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? Am I going to be number one, number two, number three? Where am I going to be in all, in, in here? Because we're, we're, we're within the inner circle of Jesus. We're not just these people out here that's looking to see a miracle. We're one of the 12 here. And of the 12, you know, there were three of them that were really special. And so I tell you what I think, whenever, whenever, we, whenever the, his kingdom does come, I really feel like we're going to be right there with him, like right, and they're, they're jockeying for position. What does Jesus do? He puts on a towel, and he washes their feet. That's the Jesus we're supposed to be imitating. Here's the truth, right? This is really tough to swallow, and I'm giving you that as a little bit of a forewarning here. It's a tough-to-swallow statement. You realize how much of a servant you are or not by the way you react when someone actually treats you like one. I know. I told you. Like, don't give me that. I warned you this was coming. I feel like they're just running over me. Like, all I do is do for everybody else, and nobody appreciates it. I know you never say that. I've heard about that somewhere, that some people say that. I get it. We want to be appreciated. But I guess it depends on who you are doing it for, right? Now I'm meddling a little bit, aren't I? I'm getting all up in your business. The truth of the matter is, like, Jesus exhibited his genuine humility by his selflessness and by his service. So, so, <laughs> I've already pricked you a little bit. Let's dig a little further, all right? Let's just twist the knife a little bit. So here's a few questions to ask yourself to see where your heart is in regards to service. Does your service reflect your worship? Now, that doesn't hurt bad, right? In Luke chapter 4, verse 7, Jesus connected worship with service. He said this. He said, worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So he connected the two, like, because here's the truth. You will worship what you serve. Now, I know that just saying that, it kind of like goes right over your heads. But write that down. Think about it later. You will worship what you serve. You will worship what you serve. And the truth of the matter is, whatever you are investing your time in and your energies in, is what you're serving, and that is what you are worshiping. I'm all about raising our hands when we're singing, but I'm also about putting those hands to work. That's what I'm saying. Like, how can you be worshiping God but not doing anything for him? 
or for other people? Sorry. Number two question, right? So, so my first question was, does your service reflect your worship? Here's another introspective question. Do you make demands or do you meet needs? I know. But do you make demand? When you, okay, when you walk into a room, okay, here, here's the difference. What they really ought to do around here, or somebody should, all right, that's making demands. How can I help? That's meeting needs. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm talking about. Seeing a need and filling it. I don't know that this is true for everybody, but a preacher I used to listen to, he said this one time. He said, a need seen is an assignment given. Yeah, but um, I don't know. At least consider it, right? A need seen is an assignment given. Now, (laughs) we should at least consider that when we see a need, maybe we are being called to meet that need because maybe you saw something that nobody else saw or you saw what somebody else saw but they can't do. So maybe God showed that to you because you're the one that needs to solve the problem. I don't know. I'm just saying like, are you a, do you just make demands or do you meet needs? I'm sorry. This is tough, right? But are we really living out Servanthood, are we serving God? And I don't know really how to say this shortly, but do you want to be noticed by others or by Jesus? Like, do you do what you want? Do you do what you do so that other people will commend you for doing it? Or are you doing what you are doing because you want to honor your Heavenly Father? Is your service about being noticed by others or about what you are doing for Him? Because He sees. And he knows. Jesus was our example. And we are called to this life of humility. Born in a manger. Borrowed everything he had. Gave it all away. Had an incredible influence on the lives of others. Did everything for his heavenly father. How was this exhibited? What did it look like? How was this humility evidenced in his life? He was selfless and he served. He showed us this through his service. And then finally through his obedience. Through obedience. Verse 8 in Philippians 2 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He said in John chapter 5, verse 30, he said, I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He sought the will of his father. I don't know who authored this. It wasn't me. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, each one over the other. And that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath the other, and that it's not a question of growing taller, but stooping lower. You know I wasn't smart enough to write that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Appreciate that. 
there is something about this Christian life that we are missing. It was his selflessness that demonstrated his humility. It was his service that demonstrated his humility. It was his obedience to his father that demonstrated his humility. So yes, Jesus was born in a manger, but it was not an uh uh-oh. It was intentional. It was done on purpose. And it teaches us this. This is an important truth, that healthy humility comes from a place of confidence. The humility demonstrated by Jesus Christ was not a result of any weakness or shame or guilt or embarrassment. Jesus Christ, matter of fact, this, I, I believe this, that Jesus knew who he was and he knew why he was here and he knew where he was going. Like, I know why I'm here. I know where, I know who my father is. I know who I am. I know exactly why I'm here and I know where I'm going. And I'm gonna live humbly while I'm here to accomplish my father's will. I'm gonna live selflessly. I'm gonna be your servant and I'm gonna be obedient to my heavenly father. I know exactly who I am. There is confidence in genuine humility. There's not shame. There's not embarrassment. There is confidence when you are genuinely humble. This was the life he chose. This was the life that he modeled for us. Using all that he had to benefit us, to benefit others. He was God. And all of his godly power was used to help people. Not build them a bigger house. All that he was, was given away. That's why in John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses in scripture, he said this, he said, the thief comes but to kill and to destroy. And then he finishes the verse, he says, but I am come that you might have life. Like, right? So, the thing, so they might have life. That's you and I. He said, I have come to give you life. And that would be pretty great if he stopped there. But he said, not only that, he said, and that they might have it more abundantly. Here's, here's, here's the onus. So not only is he giving us life, like filling us with this incredible life because of his Godness, but he goes, I'm gonna give them enough that it overflows. The word abundant means superfluous. I know, I had to look it up. Overflowing, enough to share. I cannot contain how much life God is pouring into me. So what do I do with this? It overflows. And I'm to serve other people. And I'm to bless others. That's, that's this abundant life. Abundant life is not necessarily about you getting a corporate jet. The abundant life is God giving you so much that it overflows to other people in your world. In your oikos, your intentional family. Those people that God has put in your life. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Abundant living is leveraging all you have been given for the benefit of others. I love this so much. I've had a couple conversations this week. Coffee with somebody yesterday. And I'm like, so, so here's, here's the honor. I'm, he requested the meeting. I don't know what it's about. Usually I have some kind of an idea. And I'm waiting for us to get around to why he wanted to meet with me and it never came up. And he finally goes, I just, I want to do something. 
Like, what do you got? I'm excited about what God is doing in my life. I love to be a part of Virginia Hills Church. So what can I do? I want to jump in and start helping. I want to do stuff. He goes, what time can I be there on Sunday morning? So he and his wife were here at 8 o'clock this morning, just lending a hand, helping out. We had an announcement at 9 o'clock. We needed some, some guys that knew carpentry and knew how to paint for a project we're doing with Habitat for Humanity. He comes to me afterwards, all right, who do I talk to? That's what I'm talking about. Like, we are given so much. We want to volunteer. We want to get involved. That's what I'm talking about. One of our sweet ladies in our church posted something on Facebook this week. Hey, Will, I'll, I'll take, you know, you single moms, I want you to know I'm going to, I'd like to open up my home and take care of your kids for an evening so you can go out and breathe. <laughs> Curl up in a ball in Target without any kiddos. That just blesses my heart. Like, like that is who we are to be. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I want us to take the initiative and not wait for an opportunity, but ask God, what is it? Like, what can I do? You don't have to wait for the institution of a church to come up with a job assignment for you. We are called to live. We've been given much. And it's about leveraging who we are, what we have been given for the cause of Christ and living humbly in community. It's leveraging all that I have been given for the benefit of others. That's, that's humility. That's it. It's not a complicated formula. Beautiful passage of scripture in Micah chapter 6, 6, 7, and 8 of the verses I'm going to read to you. Interestingly, somebody told me in between the services that this last verse, which is, the, which is where we're going in this, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, is actually on the wall in the Library of Congress in the reading room. Kind of cool. We're not going to make a trip to go look at it. You just take my word for it. But here's like Micah is talking to the Lord saying like, what, what can I give you? What do you expect from me, God? And he says this, he said, he said, wherewithal, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And then he starts throwing out these options, right? He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that going to make you happy, God? Like, is this, is this what you are expecting from me? And here's the response. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? Three things, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Powerful, powerful. So yeah, away in a manger. Seems like an uh-oh. No. That's our example. That's what we're called into. Can you imagine if we interacted with our spouse that way? Some husband's in trouble. Can you imagine if we willingly took out the trash? 
Can you imagine? If we offer to do things and we breathe life into this relationship, can you imagine if a kid actually cleaned his room without being asked? Can you imagine if there were so many volunteers that we didn't have enough room for you? By the way, that's why I'm not announcing that we need help with Habitat for Humanity right now. We had so many people respond from the nine o'clock that we don't have enough work for everybody. Isn't that beautiful? Like, that's what I'm talking about. We, uh, it's, that's, who, that's what we're called to be. That's what it looks like. There's a lot more aspects of Jesus that obviously we can get into. But away in the manger, yeah, that's intentional humility. That's our example. That's our calling. Let's pray. Father, we, we need to be this. We need your help to do so. Help us to follow the example of Jesus in our relationships, in our church, in our community. And help us to be selfless, be servants, and be obedient to our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.